Welcome to Your Brain On, a podcast about the neuroscience of everything. I'm Aisha Sherzai. And I'm Dean Sherzai. Aisha and I, we're both neurologists and scientists, each fascinated by the wonders of the human brain. But more importantly, we're also a married couple. That's right. So the focus of this episode is especially close to our hearts and our minds. We'll be talking about the neuroscience of love. Being in love, it's a wondrous thing. And peeking behind the neuropsychological aspects of what happens when we fall in love will make it seem even more magical. We'll be exploring how our brains physically process love, what chemicals are at play, and how love can impact our mental and physical health. Plus, how neurotransmitters you might already know about, like dopamine, oxytocin, and vasopressin, are responsible for making us feel one of life's most beautiful and sometimes most heartbreaking emotions. This is your brain on love. We asked this episode's guests, what is love? Basic level, it's kind of two variables. First one is the biological variable, the neurology, the neurochemistry, your genetics, your psychology. I mean, there's love for nature, love for a god, love for children. But then also we have a massive cultural dimension as well. Intense passionate and idealizing connection between two people. A sociological dimension, which is all about the family rituals or ideas you have about what love is. Love isn't a noun. Love really truly is a verb. It's an action. Intense desire to connect with another person. It's words of affirmation, expressions of gratitude. The ancient Greeks, they had multiple words to express love. Agape, which is a more selfless, non-individual love. The answer to the question, what is love? It isn't a single answer like oxytocin. The fact that it's so complicated, I think, shows how vital it is, actually. When you fall in love, dopamine, a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure, reward, and motivation, floods your brain. You feel elated, energetic, and even euphoric. But you also experience markers of stress. Your heart might be a flutter and your palms may become sweaty. It's almost like your fight or flight response has kicked in. And in a way, it has. In those initial moments of a budding romance, your brain releases another neurotransmitter, norepinephrine, associated with the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is directly responsible for activating your fight or flight response. It's an adaptation we evolved to help us prepare for life-threatening encounters. In tandem, our parasympathetic nervous system, which mediates rest, digest, and reproduce states like relaxed muscles and resting heart rate, takes a step back. At the outset of an exciting romantic endeavor, the sympathetic nervous system leads the way. Together, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems form two major parts of your autonomous nervous system, which manages all of those involuntary processes we may not really be conscious of, like our heart rate, respiration, digestion, and particularly relevant to romantic relationships, sexual arousal. But why do we elicit a stress response when we start to fall in love? What's the evolutionary advantage? This is one of those areas of evolutionary psychology where research is ongoing and a bit of a speculation might be at play, but there's something important to remember remember, something that we stress a lot, pun intended, and that is stress isn't inherently bad. Good stress does exist. Right. Stress isn't exclusively a response to negative circumstances. It can also be an enriching response to novel experiences and taking risks while working towards our dreams. That can include one of life's most instinctual goals for survival, finding a partner. How does love 
change over time. We asked the renowned psychiatrist, author, and associate professor of Harvard Medical School, Dr. Richard Schwartz. Some recent work in neurobiology has supported the idea that love over time has different phases and changes. Love initially is a state that is disruptive and stressful and obsessive. Your cortisol level, a good indicator of stress, is usually very high. Serotonin activity in the brain is low in the same way that it is in obsessive compulsive states. Some studies suggest the stress we experience during romantic initiation helps to make us alert, opening us to social cues and emotional expressions, which are essential for forming new bonds and, to borrow a phrase from my kids, vibing with someone. Yes, maybe this episode should be called Your Brain on Good Vibes. Because when these social encounters are successful, when you see a romantic interest opening up to you, listening to your stories, laughing at your jokes, that's when the tidal waves of dopamine hit. Your brain's reward systems are swept up in a perfect hormonal storm. As these neurotransmitters and hormones spike, another neurotransmitter, serotonin, drops. Serotonin is a key chemical messenger in the moderation of core functions like mood, appetite, sleep, and sexual desire. In the context of this initial phase of finding love, that exhilarating stage of attraction, the drop in serotonin release manifests as feeling of obsession and infatuation. Some researchers have actually found links between having low levels of serotonin and obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. When you say you can't get a new romantic prospect out of your head, well, here's the neuroscience to back it up. It's why you may not be able to sleep at night or struggle to focus on anything other than when you might see that special someone again. The song says it's a total eclipse of the heart, but really, it's more a total eclipse of the brain. So what distinguishes love from infatuation, deep liking, deep empathizing? I think the main thing is this intense desire to be united with the person. That's Dr. Arthur Aaron, professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. We asked him about the self-expansion model, which he developed with his wife, Dr. Elaine Aaron, all the way back in 1986. Much of my research is in what we call the self-expansion model. One core principle is that a fundamental human motivation is to expand the self, to increase our resources, availabilities, knowledge, and it can be done in many ways. One of the ways it can be done is by forming a relationship with another person. Because another principle we have is that when you get close to someone, you include them in the self. We've done some studies showing that you actually prefer people who are a little different from you, different interests. So if one of you is interested in science and one in, the, in music, you would gain from each other from that. In the fMRI studies we've done, the dopamine reward area, which is an area associated with excitement and opportunity. And when you're looking at pictures of someone you've just fallen in love with, that's the main area that gets activated. We've also seen this in, you know, we did a study of people who are married more than 10 years. That's what led us to do some fMRI studies on long-term couples that claim to be intensely in love. And we saw the same activations. I mean, there were some differences, but not, not on that region. Interesting. People who are newly in love have a lot more anxiety. Yeah. Whereas in a long-term relationship, there's less of that anxiety indication. 
Then there's oxytocin, a well-known and widely romanticized hormone, and for good reason. Our neuroendocrine system, an interplay of the systems that govern our neurons and our hormones, releases substantial amounts of oxytocin when we feel skin-on-skin -skin contact while hugging, kissing, or during other intimate activities. Oxytocin production also peaks during experiences associated with parent-child love, including pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding. It's crucial for forming bonds and deepening connections, and therefore deeply interwoven with our survival instincts. As that thrilling, intoxicating romantic fling settles into a steady long-term relationship, oxytocin makes you feel calm and content. Dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin are regulated back to their normal levels, and the complex chemical cocktail we know as love, rather than being a source of stress, becomes a shield against that stress. Dr. Richard Schwartz had more to say on this. After about a year, something shifts and love calms down. Cortisol levels drop. It's no longer stressful. It's actually a buffer against stress. Serotonin levels tend to uh, go back to normal, and you're not just constantly thinking about the beloved, worrying about the beloved. It may sound less romantic, but it means that you can turn your attention to other things, at least some of the time, which is a great thing for having a full life and doing something useful in the world. Now, another hormone, vasopressin, synthesized by your hypothalamus, an almond-shaped part of the brain that sits just above the brainstem, sets the stage for, believe it or not, monogamous relationships. Fascinating. Research into the dance between oxytocin and vasopressin is ongoing, but some studies credit the latter with creating that desire to protect your family, an almost territorial drive to safeguard one's relationship. This is where you might think, oh, that could become dangerous. That could contribute to unhealthy feelings of possessiveness. In fact, all the neurological and hormonal complexities we've discussed can play a part in the downfall of relationships as much as they can form the foundation for them. Now we welcome renowned author and evolutionary anthropologist at Oxford University, Dr. Anna Matchin, to Your Brain on podcast for an expansive conversation about oxytocin, dopamine, and lesser discussed hormones like beta endorphins, whether genetics can heighten our predisposition to desire relationships, and why love in all forms, not just romantic, is a fundamental human need. So I'm an anthropologist. I began researching sort of the evolution of human social behavior with my PhD in 2003 on some very, very dead hominins. We were trying to understand how sort of human mating behavior evolved and where we started to see the sort of the first imprint of the human family. But that was like 1.5 million to about half a million years ago. And once I'd finished my PhD, I actually moved to Oxford to work with somebody called Professor Robin Dunbar. I actually kind of hounded him at Oxford until he gave me a job. He is world-renowned really for his social neuroscience his work on social behavior, social networks, that kind of thing. And I joined his research group at Oxford and everybody else was doing like big network work. I decided I wanted to go tiny, tiny. I wanted to do like the really close relationships. I started as everybody does with love, with obviously romantic love. And then I had a kid and I became very interested in father-children relationships, father-baby relationships, and what happens to a father biologically and neurologically when he becomes a father. So I kind of added that to my, my little bow. As an anthropologist, you read around the subject and you read about love in different cultures. And I suddenly thought, wow, you know, there's a lot written about romantic love and quite a bit about parental love, but there's so many other sources. 
sorts of love. And so I decided I was just going to go for it and really try and understand what universally all different sorts of love share, which is actually sort of the neurochemistry, and then how they were also individual. And that's really where I'm at today and why I wrote the book, because I wanted people to understand, first of all, that love is highly complex. And if anyone tries to reduce it down to a single thing, they are not giving it its due. And secondly, I wanted us to become reacquainted with all the different sorts of love that humans can experience, because we're very lucky, actually, in terms of how many different sorts of people and beings we can love. Your setup is amazing yeah. because we know that somebody is really passionate about their topic when in the first few minutes, they're so into their topic that it throws our questions right off. The, so so I'll start <laughs> with the most it. important thing, which is let's start with definitions. Yeah. Uh, what is love? Okay, you've really hit the nail on the head there. That's kind of my whole job title, what is love? And as I've been doing it for two decades, and I still can't give you a straight answer. Love is really, really complicated. At the most basic level, it's kind of exists on with two different sets of variables which feed into individual experiences of love. So the first one is the biological variable. And that's things like, you know, the neurology, the neurochemistry, your genetics, your psychology, all those sorts of things. And those are the things we study in the biological dimension. But then also we have a massive cultural dimension as well, a sociological dimension, which is all about the religion, the laws that you were brought up in, the country you were brought up in, the family rituals or ideas you have about what love is, what your media tells you love is. And all of these different factors come together in this very, very complex interaction to make up your individual experience of love. So the answer to the question, what is love? It isn't a single answer like oxytocin or attachment, if you're a psychologist. <laughs> it's all those things all together. Those of us who study love, we don't actually define it as an emotion. We define it as a fundamental need. Emotions are quite fleeting. They're there to promote your survival in a, in a particular situation. We've kind of reassessed love over the last few years because love is too complex to be an emotion. It's too persistent. We actually are now recategorizing it as a need as akin to things like food and water. It's actually something that keeps your body in homeostasis. And if you lack love, then your body will go out of homeostasis, it will go out of balance, and you need to receive love for it to go back in. So it's a bit like, you know, when you're hungry or thirsty. The reason why we crave love and the reason why it feels so fundamental to you, and as you say, you feel it in your stomach, for example, love engages every mechanism in your body. When you are in a relationship, every mechanism in your body is focused on that relationship. Something that's known as biobehavioral synchrony is in a way the biological definition of, of soulmates. So we all have that sensation of being so close to somebody that they are part of you. We know that when we're with someone we're in a close relationship with that we love, our behavior synchronizes. If we look inside the body, then the physiology of the two bodies also comes into synchrony. So heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature. And if we look inside the brain, we see a couple of things happening. First of all, we see neural activation mirroring each other. Look at the world in the same way. For example, you're sharing a perspective on the world. And also we see the neurochemistry. So we all exist at different baseline levels of circulating oxytocin. But when you're with someone you love, those come into synchrony as well. And we've seen it in romantic couples. We've seen it in friendships. And we've also seen it between parents and children. That, that, that's beautiful. I agree with you. I definitely thought that there's a synchrony, a physiological synchrony. And there are mechanisms there. We talked about uh, oxytocin, vasopressin, sympathetic, parasympathetic systems, um, limbic hypothalamic pituitary axis, and all of that, and much more. But is there a way to control it, let's say? You can't induce love. I, I, I challenge that quote, quote because look at the two of us. I, I must have done some kind of inducing in Aisha because she's so much better than me. <laughs> so so I am, I'm proof to the opposite. I'm joking. Just go, go for it. Sorry. Sorry. Now, okay. Sorry for cutting you off. Go ahead. Yeah. 
Um, no, I would say you can't, no, you can't induce love, but you can certainly encourage it by understanding these mechanisms. We can encourage love. So I always joke to the people who come to my public talks, right, I'm going to give you the science of the perfect first date, getting this person that you really like to like you. And one of the things we do is we say, we're going to try and induce some form of biobehavioral synchrony. We won't get full biobehavioral synchrony because you don't know the person well enough. You're not bonded enough. The, the chemical of long-term love, which is what we studied at Oxford, is beta endorphin. We started researching it because that's what keeps primates together and we're a primate. Beta endorphin is induced by any, lots of behaviors. So exercise, laughing, touching, singing, dancing, all these different things. If you do them in synchrony, you get a, a really ramped up effect of beta endorphin. So, so the release of beta endorphin is increased several fold. So what I always joke to my to my people at my talk is I say your first date has to be go and learn something like ballroom dancing or salsa or something like that because you will be doing something in synchrony you are doing exercise. You'll probably laugh because you're gonna, not going to be very good at it. You'll probably stand on someone's toe. That will induce pain. And beta endorphin is, is your body's painkiller. So all of these things will induce beta endorphin. And hopefully, because of that, you will feel more open towards that other person. They will feel more open towards you. It induces a euphoria. And hopefully, that will give you a good head start. Wonderful. Beautiful. The, the complexity which you demonstrated is so beautiful because we listen to social media descriptions of dopamine this and testosterone that and estrogen this and there are vector determinants not mm. ultimate determinants because we're a more complex organism yeah yeah i mean we absolutely are the neurochemistry of love in humans i mean you mentioned dopamine there's oxytocin dopamine serotonin and beta endorphin and they are all important at different stages in a human relationship and some of them trade off against each other some of them combine to, to have effects oxytocin will orientate you towards a social object it will lower your inhibitions to approach that object so it, it quietens the amygdala and dopamine Dopamine always is released at the same time as oxytocin in the brain. And dopamine is, is your hormone of motivation. And it's there to motivate you to make the effort to go and talk to the person. You, you just spoke about beta endorphin and dopamine. One thing that I've read is that a lot of people who initially fall in love and marry because of love don't do the work necessary to maintain that and that has to do with dopamine. I hate to reduce to dopamine again. Everything in the literature nowadays seems to be dopamine. Yeah, it's kind you of You know, I, I, yeah. I hit my elbow on the wall. <laughs> it was dopamine's fault, you know. <laughs> Not, not to simplify too much, what happens is when people fall in love and then they get married, they don't work in the mechanisms. And after a year, it feels like, my gosh, I don't feel any of those emotions that I did before. That synchrony never happened. What do you think about that, that aspects of love over long term? What happens with oxytocin and dopamine, which are the hormones of attraction, they go into the background quite a lot as the relationship endures. And it's actually that compatibility, that generation of beta endorphin that really is going to maintain your relationship in the long term. It's very complex as to why relationships don't last. A lot of it's due to compatibility. Some of it's to do with, for example, incompatible attachment styles. Obviously, unlike the lesser mammals, our love is both conscious and unconscious. And we bring a lot of conscious contemplation to our relationships, which is what makes us stand out really as an animal. I love that you added that nuance and complexity that there's a lot of psychological aspects to it as well. Earlier, you were speaking about the neurochemistry of love, and you briefly mentioned genetic underpinnings. What did you mean by that? Do we have a proclivity? Some of us have a proclivity to love more? Or what are the genetics of love that we all need to know about? 
Okay, so the genetics of love, I will say this is a very young field. We've been doing it for about 10 years. The deeper we dig, the more complicated it gets. A lot of the genes we're looking at are receptor genes. For example, the oxytocin receptor gene has 26 single nucleotide polymorphisms. So that particular gene seems to underpin a lot of variation in the way people behave when they're in love and how they feel when they're in love and the skills they bring to being in love. But they're not deterministic. There is a major environmental interaction going on, which is very, very complicated. What we have found is particularly with the oxytocin receptor gene, there, there does seem to be some influence. So for example, there is a set of single nucleotide polymorphisms which have a cumulative effect on how good you are empathizing. Now, obviously, empathy is one of the fundamental skills of being in a relationship. If you can't empathize with your partner, it's going to be tricky. There is also a gene which I refer to as like the, the nesting snip, because there's a version of it which seems to be carried by people who are much more motivated to want to be in a relationship. They're much more likely to be in a relationship when we test them and they're much more likely to get great satisfaction from being in a relationship. So they're the kind of people who seek that partnership out. People who don't carry that variation tend to be much less likely to have been in long-term relationships and they tend to find those relationships much harder to deal with. And that's probably got something to do with that affinity between the oxytocin receptor and, and circulating oxytocin. Those people just, they just don't have that oxytocin level that really orientates them to towards other people and they're just not that genetically driven to want to be in a relationship with anybody. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I just realized that the worst insult that I can give anybody from now on is you're really oxytocin deficient. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> this is so fascinating. So uh, we have we have some friends who are, you know, who are in the realm of arts, we have some interesting conversations during dinner. And when we speak about this, and hopefully we'll speak more about the genetics from what we learned from you today, most of them say, you have to just don't ruin the concept of love by bringing so much chemistry into it. This just kind of takes away the magic. Next time, I'll get them on a dance floor, dance with me, make them laugh with my dancing, yes. and, and then afterwards ask them, do you love me more? Yes, yeah. yes, we'll yes. create more synchrony. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of people also are afraid of the fact that as we become more knowledgeable about this, especially in the age of AI and all of all the technology, that this becomes used by marketing tools to manipulate human beings. As we become more aware of neuroscience, that's always the danger. The other side of it is we get to understand beautiful concepts like this so that at least if we can't direct or or engineer love, at least we can uh, make people understand the promoters, the directors, the vectors of, of love in their own life. And, and that gives so much freedom as opposed to our very limbic response to everything that goes awry, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. People often say to me, does studying love ruin it then? And I actually say no, because the more you study it, the more awe-inspiring it is. Very Absolutely. true. Beautifully stated. I have a question about how our cultural differences affect the way we experience and express love. You know, there are some societies, especially in the West, where the romantic aspect of love and flowers and chocolates and Valentine's Day is so special. And that's the main driving force, especially during the initial states. But that's not the case in other cultures and traditions around the world. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we forget we have a very sort of Western-centric view of love. We think romantic love is like the pinnacle of all loves and it's the achievement, it's the one you need to achieve in your life. That's very unusual in a lot of societies, particularly in collectivist societies, where actually relationships are more family-based. What we would call the reproductive relationship between parents or whatever isn't necessarily a romantic love relationship. It could be about two families coming together. You know, it's a new thing in the West comparatively, if you look in the time span. Particularly sort of 100 years ago, if we 
look at marriage, the number of marriages that were actually love marriages wasn't actually that high. Because, for example, women had to get married to be protected, to be financially secure, to have children who had to be married. And quite often, it was a much more pragmatic decision than the one we take now. So it's not about achieving romantic love. It's about achieving love, particularly if you, you're not particularly interested in being in a long-term relationship, you don't want children particularly, so you don't want a parental relationship you know, with a child, then just find some love, really. Beautifully stated. Thank you for Amazing. that. Um, what are your thoughts about the influence of dating apps? How is it affecting us? Our biology is old, but these dating apps and the tools that we have are very new. Is that harmful? Is it useful? Generally, overall, they are difficult for our brain because our rate of biological evolution in relation to sort of evolution of the brain, particularly evolution of something as ancient as mating behavior, is incredibly slow. And you compare that to our ability to innovate is incredibly fast. So there's a lot of things in our life that our brain can't cope with because we've innovated them, but our brain is like set back somewhere else going, I don't know what's going on. And particularly when it comes to dating apps, the problem is when you first see someone in person who you're attracted to, your senses have taken in loads and loads and loads of information and they've run it through an algorithm and they've decided whether or not this person is kind of for you. And if it is, then they kick off the oxytocin and dopamine and off you go. Those apps are not designed to help your senses in any way whatsoever, particularly like the really basic ones where it's just like you know basically they're matching you on location and that's it and you've got a photo and it might not even be a photo of the person you're actually going to end up with <laughs> your brain is heavily handicapped in that situation because you're getting no sensory information so the algorithm's going ah you're also handicapped in terms of your ability to mentalize so the ability to be able to guess someone's intention and know whether they're going to be a cheat or a liar or whatever your brain can't do that either what i always say about dating apps is they are a tool remember they're a tool they're an introductory tool all they do is they broaden the pool of people who you could possibly meet. They are not a tool that you can use to sense whether you're attracted to somebody. A lot of young people come to my talks because they've been on all the apps, they haven't met anybody. And that is because our brains have not evolved to do it that way. And I always say to them, use it as an introductory app, but you need to get in the room with the person, obviously safely, as soon as you can, because only then will your brain go, right, let me take in all the sensory information. Let me use my mentalizing skills to work out, actually, are you a good person? Absolutely. Well, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, scheduling maybe some dance lessons again maybe we should mm. go ahead and <laughs> sometimes it doesn't work out a broken heart is metaphorical of course but actually there's some science to it it even has a name takotsubo cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome when you experience the extreme emotional stress of a breakup your heart can literally change shape your left ventricle that's the main pumping chamber of the heart can get enlarged affecting its ability to pump blood properly it can cause chest pain anxiety difficulty breathing and nausea it gets poeticized but really having your heart broken can be a serious thing can I just say, this is all very sad. But the name Takatsubu Cardiomyopathy, oh, I gotta say that name again. <laughs> the name was coined by Japanese doctors in 1990. And it comes from a pot used to catch octopi because the doctors thought the left ventricle of quote-unquote broken heart looked kind of like an octopus in a trap. There, next time you get your heart broken, cheer yourself up by imagining a little octopus in your heart. <laughs> We spoke to world-renowned cardiologist Dr. Columbus Batiste about the physiology of heartbreak and how it physically affects your heart. 
you know, we think that love belongs in the limbic system, in the brain. <laughs> how did love get associated with the heart? <laughs> how did you guys feel it? Yeah, how did you yeah. guys feel it? Oh, come on now. So important of emotion. Oh, my goodness. I mean, do bees bee? Do birds burr? I mean... <laughs> The heart is the center of the universe. Come on now. The fact that you use your brain to say that tells otherwise. <laughs> I always kind of get upset when I see the heart symbol on Valentine's Day and I don't see the brain symbol ever coming forward. It's so sad that you only see the brain symbol for Halloween. But, I, but you have to admit. Like gowls and like scary things. But I yeah. know. The brain symbol is more beautiful anyway. The brain oh. with all these. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sure he thinks otherwise. I mean, yeah. which would you rather? Rather touch come on to the, those of you out there listen would you rather touch a brain with all the gyri or would you rather touch a heart i mean come on we'll agree to disagree on that one yeah. but i can see how the ancients probably thought that love was centered in the heart as opposed to the brain because you get this feeling right here when you were just dating the first time you get that pitter patter that's right there and what's so unique that makes it a challenge for us as cardiologists sometimes to really delineate what is real versus what is not a heart attack yeah and this is the beauty i think of the time that we're living in right now yeah we're understanding a lot more than we thought we understood i mean if you think about the impact of stress in the heart the japanese have let out with this everything from Hiroshi all the way through to now Takotsubu disorder. It wasn't until 1990 when Takotsubu disorder was really first defined. And I don't remember one discussion inside of training. Neither did we. General cardiology or interventional for it. No, I no. don't remember that no. either. Yeah. yeah. Now I diagnose it several times a month, literally. The phrase, you broke my heart or I have a broken heart. Yes. How is that related to medical terminologies nowadays. Yeah, I mean, that has been around literally for centuries. The most recent report of it actually didn't occur in a female, which is more common. It actually occurred inside of a man. I always reflect on it is during that horrific Uvalde shooting. The news reported about a man who went to visit his wife at her gravesite and then suffered a massive heart attack. I remember my mind went immediately to broken heart syndrome. And we think of it, we romanticize that Romeo and Juliet, they can't live without each other. But there is truth to that in terms of the grief that really overwhelms someone and the massive surge. And this is where you guys are going to, I don't want to step on toes. You know, you start getting that surge of the neuropeptides and norepinephrine and, and everything, and it overwhelms the heart. When you get this surge, the hormones, they basically lead to constriction or everything tightens up of the blood vessels. The heart has to pump against that. So it's like bench pressing. And now you have this heavy weight you're trying to lift off and that's what the heart's doing and eventually what's going to happen if you're given Arnold Schwarzenegger style weights you're gonna fail and now all of a sudden that weight's gonna fall back on you so the heart balloons outward as a result of the tremendous amount of catecholamine surge the only part that remains functional is the very beginning or the origin part called the basal a segments of the heart muscle so it squeezes and it gives the appearance of an octopus trap out of Japan hence the term takosubu disorder or apical ballooning syndrome and we've since described Describe multiple variations of it, but that's a typical uh, uh, feature. That's okay, amazing. so is it appropriate to call it, you know, as a synonym as the broken heart syndrome, or do you think? Absolutely. Okay. Does it happen under other circumstances, or is it pretty unique in under emotional circumstances? Most commonly, it's emotional circumstances, but it can. It has been described in overwhelmingly happy scenarios. Oh. That surprise birthday party. You've heard of people who've been surprised, and all of a sudden that they they succumb to this. We've also heard of people watching a movie or a sporting event. So stress has been uniquely related to cardiovascular events and lack of blood flow for many years. And the most common now, probably the most recognized version of this is indeed the broken heart syndrome.
Seeking a source for this intense stress takes us back to the brain, where when you're in love, certain parts of your mesolimbic system, your reward system, become highly active, like the caudate nucleus, which is known to be sensitive to reward signals. And there's the reward center of the brain itself, the ventral tegmental area, or VTA, which is one of your brain's most productive dopamine factories. The VTA will send some of this dopamine along your mesolimbic pathway to other vital parts of your brain like the amygdala and the hippocampus. These areas are also associated with your brain's reward system, but they also play a part in driving your emotions, your motivations, and how you process memories. All of this happens in a way that's not dissimilar from our brain's response to euphoria-inducing substances. There's some science to all those songs that describe love as drugs. As I mentioned earlier, some research suggests that falling in love evokes the same hormones as having obsessive-compulsive disorder. And which area of the brain has been found to be particularly active in people with OCD? The VTA. So the big picture is, neuroscientifically speaking, falling in love has correlations with drug addiction and OCD. It's no wonder then that falling out of love has some profound painful effects like withdrawal. We talk about neuroplasticity a lot. Neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to flexibly adapt and readapt. Do anything for long enough and it becomes second nature, right? That's neuroplasticity, your brain literally reshaping itself and altering its neural pathways to inculcate a behavior on a deeper cognitive level. In the context of love, neuroplasticity gets us used to our partners. It's why all that fight or flight stuff we discussed earlier happens at the outset of a romantic endeavor. It's new, it's exhilarating, it's challenging. Then we see our partners more and more eventually every day for months and years and challenges become comfort. That's neuroplasticity as it relates to love. When you go through a breakup, those synaptic pathways you've built in your brain during the years that you've spent with someone are severed and the familiar sources of happiness and comfort your brain has come to rely on are no more. If you've seen the Pixar film Inside Out, this is well represented by the so-called personality islands a number of literal islands inside the main character's mind which are tied to her core memories and personality traits. When she experiences a life-changing event, these islands crumble and her emotions are thrown into turmoil until she recovers and forms new personality islands. I absolutely love that movie. Me too. She does that with the help of her family because love isn't just between partners, of course. There's also familial love. There's platonic love between friends and there's self-love too. Take a moment to thank the ventromedial prefrontal cortex in your frontal lobe. It allows you to perceive yourself and appreciate aspects of your identity. Enduring heartbreak with help from friends and family soften that fall. Our neuroplastic ability to find comfort in a romantic partner also enables us to seek solace and warmth from others we're close to. And these are often the first people who'll push us to stop sitting around in self-pitying melancholy. They might not realize the neuroscience of why dragging us out of our funks is so vital, but they're essentially acting as catalysts for neuroplasticity empowering us to build new synaptic highways for dopamine to traverse. When they say, we need to take your mind off of things, they're right at a cellular level. 
And when they celebrate you and fight to make you feel good about yourself, they're creating a diversion, redirecting the positive hormones you got from romantic love into the channels of self-love. We'll no doubt dedicate entire future episodes on how our friends, relatives, and sense of identity affect our brains. Because love is such a magical phenomenon, it can't possibly be fully explored in one single hour. In a moment, we'll explore what neuroscience can teach us about maintaining long-term, healthy, fun relationships. But first, Dean and I would like to share our own love story with you. Our story, our journey of love began in a land about 8,000 miles away in Afghanistan. Both of us, worlds apart, found ourselves in Afghanistan for a purpose greater than ourselves. I volunteered and eventually worked with an organization called Doctors Without Borders during my medical school years, working in women and children's health sector. And I took a sabbatical from my work at NIH, where I was immersed in neurodegenerative disease research, to join the World Bank in rebuilding Afghanistan's healthcare. The sights and sounds, the heart-wrenching moments we witnessed. Oh, the, the suffering and the pain, watching women and children, the most vulnerable, facing the harshest realities of life, it really was overwhelming. Both of us found solace in helping build the healthcare system of a country where one out of four children were dying before the age of five from easily preventable diseases. And one out of six women would die due to pregnancy-related complications. That work and that period, they defined the essence of our union. But amidst this, there was also a sense of frustration. Seeing some of the people who were there just to make a profit, the indifference, the dehumanization to the suffering around them. It was like being in a parallel universe where the values of human life and empathy were in stark contrast. Mm, absolutely. It's intriguing how intense experiences, particularly those laden with emotional and situational challenges, can shape our feelings, isn't it? It forges deeper connections and emotions. That's an important point. Our story, unique as it may seem, actually speaks to universal truth about love. Intense experiences, especially those shared in challenging environments, can accelerate and deepen the bond between individuals. That's what made our meeting so special. At one of those expat parties, a setting we had both grown weary of, fate had us sit next to each other at a discussion. In that moment, our shared frustrations and aspirations resonated more profoundly than they might have probably in a more ordinary setting. It's fascinating how adversity can act as a catalyst for strong emotional connections. Our brains are wired to seek comfort and understanding, especially in situations of stress or hardship. Yes, and, and this is where love transcends the typical boundaries of romance. It becomes a testament to the human spirit's ability to find connection and meaning, even in the midst of chaos. Fast forward 20 years and here we are. Here we are still fighting the good fight, still fueled by the same intense love and commitment to public health and community. And that, dear listeners, is our love story. The best way to find love is in shared purpose, meaning, challenge, and growth. At the start of this episode, I said that looking at the neuroscience of falling in love will make it seem even more magical. And after discussing everything from the wonders of love at first sight to the physical manifestation of a broken heart, it absolutely feels more extraordinary, doesn't it? 
But not just that, it feels more navigable. Knowing the neurochemistry of romantic love can help us understand the importance of all the things that keep the foundation of a healthy, long-term relationship firm and intact. We asked Dr. Arthur Aaron for some science-backed advice on sustaining exciting, long-lasting relationships. One of the things couples can do to even spark up their marriage is to have really close friendships with other couples and really sort of go deep with them. It has to do with you're showing your responsiveness. Responsiveness is a huge role in relationships. Having a partner who's responsive, who listens, who understands and validates and cares for you. I'm going to make it personal, Dr. Aaron. You and your wife, you're both professors, you're both psychologists. Do you guys do new things all the time or often enough to, to create that state? Absolutely. And we make a point of it. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. In fact, we follow the research very closely. And when any something new comes up that we could apply, we apply to our relationship. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So, I mean, my favorite example is we submitted a paper to a very high-level journal. We thought it had a low chance of getting accepted. I was home and I just read this thing about celebrating your partner's successes. And I got an email from the editor saying, the reviewers, and I love the paper, just want some very minor changes. We're going to publish this. This is great. So I made a poster of that email and put it on the front door for when she came home. Oh, that's Oh, that is beautiful. <laughs> Listening with love, getting where they're coming from, and maintaining deep and meaningful communication means we always know what our partner needs. It's all about helping them chase their dreams, sharing our own hopes, and sorting out any bumps along the way with care and understanding. And going back to what I said about neuroplasticity of challenge becoming comfort when you're with the same partner for many years, even decades. This can be a double-edged sword because an absence of healthy challenges can foster boredom, ennui, and indifference, and even breed contempt. But that environment Aisha mentions, rooted in emotional intelligence and self-awareness, it cultivates two things. One, a motivation to seek and face new challenges together, to grow, to prosper as a couple. And two, a capacity to put our own wants and needs on pause when we recognize an opportunity to push our partner towards their individual ambitions and aspirations. Sacrifice, compromise, mutual selflessness. These two things keep the excitement alive and the passion burning. They deepen our neuroplastic attachments to our partner and expose us to the kind of good stress that exercises our cognitive flexibility. And they're also why some breakups are a lot more amicable than others. It's still painful, no doubt, but that presence of mind to accept you're headed in two different directions and would rather see each other flourish than hold one another back makes no hard feelings a real neurological resolution. In a world where the ways we experience love and connections are evolving, and the means by which we meet people grow ever more distant and digital, such empathy and kindness to our partners and to ourselves will help us navigate the uncharted territories of finding someone, losing someone, and everything in between, be it a brief fling or till death do us part. This has been Your Brain on Love. And we've been your hosts, Dean and Aisha Sherzai.
To celebrate the launch of our new podcast, Your Brain On, we're giving away prizes to its earliest listeners like you. Prizes include memberships to our thriving NeuroAcademy community and bundles like our Better Brain Cooking Box, Books Bundle, and Better Brain Favorites Box. To enter, all you need to do is subscribe to Your Brain On, leave an honest review of the show on Apple Podcasts, and then sign up for the contest at the website, thebraindocs.com forward slash podcast. Find more information in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting and thank you for listening.